0: Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at the scriptures and show us what you would have us to see from this. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 38. We're going to be looking at Hezekiah uh, being sick unto death, but I want to also kind of read some context in here because this story about Hezekiah's death is in three different locations. It's going to, we're going to look at 2 Kings 21 through 11, and I just want to get us the different versions of it. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death, and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came unto him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech you, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before you in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. And it came to pass before Isaiah was gone out into the middle court, that the word of the Lord came to him saying, turn again and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, thus saith the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer and have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up into the house of the Lord. And I will add unto you 15 years and will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Take a lump of figs. And they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. And Hezekiah said unto Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up into the house of the Lord on the third day? And Isaiah said, This sign shall you have of the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that you have spoken, shall the shadow go forward 10 degrees or back 10 degrees? And Hezekiah answered, it is a light thing for the shadow to go, for, go down 10 degrees. Nay, let the shadow return backward 10 degrees. And Isaiah the prophet cried to the Lord and, the, and brought the shadow 10 degrees backward in which, by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. And then we want to look at a, Second Chronicles 32, starting at 24. In those days, Hezekiah was sick unto death and prayed unto the Lord, and he spoke unto him, and he gave him a sign. But Hezekiah returned not again according to the benefit done unto him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore there was wrath upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. Notwithstanding, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord came not upon him them in the days of Hezekiah. So this tells us that Hezekiah did not honor God, did not respect respect the gift or, uh, that was given to him. And one of the things that this section does not talk about is during those 15 year, extra years, Manasseh was born, and he became the next king after Hezekiah, and he was one of the more wicked kings until the very end, and he turned to God at the very end. But he was a very wicked king, and he would never have been born had Hezekiah not asked for this blessing, (laughs) extra life. And I think this whole story shows us that we need to be careful what we pray for sometimes because God might answer our prayer, and it might not be everything that we expect it to be. So Isaiah chapter 38, verse 1. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came unto him and said unto him, Let saith the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed unto the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you, how I have walked before you in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept. Then came the word of the Lord to Isaiah, saying, Go and say unto Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add unto your days fifteen years, and I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city, and and this shall be the sign unto you from the Lord that that the Lord will do this thing that you have spoken. Behold, I will bring again the shadow of degrees, which has gone down in the sun of Ahaz, the dial of Ahaz, 10 degrees backwards, so the sun returned 10 degrees, by which degrees it had gone down. The writings of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick, then was re- recovered from his sickness. So we want to look at this, and I think it's very interesting here. Hezekiah has been a good king. He started out doing what was right. He tore down the high places. He he, destroyed the the... Uh, groves. He destroyed the temples. He has been a very good king, and he gets sick, and it's a sickness unto death. And Amos, Isaiah comes along and says, uh, "Hey, bu- hey, buddy, get ready, get your house in order, get your will put together, decide who's going to be king over you, get get everything in order because you're going to die, you're going to be buried, and." Hezekiah turns around and away from him, and starts crying and praying. And you know, I sometimes wonder about Christians and our attitude toward death, because I see this in Hezekiah. Hezekiah has been following God. He's going to, he's getting ready to go home. And God says, "Get your house in order. You, you've been, you basically, you've been good. Get your house in order." And he goes into such tears and begs God to live. And, you know, I understand on one side the desire to to live and and go. But I also understand when Paul said, I'm torn between the two ideas. I want to go home to heaven, which is better for me. Then he tells the people, but it's better for you, the church, if I stay here and teach you. And I'm really torn between the two because I want what's good for you. But I really want what's good for me. Okay. And I understand that idea. If I can't teach and minister to people, I want to go home. I don't, I don't want to go a day beyond being able to help others grow in Christ. As long as I can help people grow in Christ, I am content to be here. No matter what God has in store for me, I'm content to be in place teaching people. As soon as that's done, I want to go home. I'm looking forward to going to heaven. Not that I'm going to do anything to make it happen quicker or anything, but I'm looking forward to going to heaven and seeing my Savior. One side of me would really like to die preaching and teaching. But it would be so traumatic to the church and the people that I'm teaching, I don't want it, I don't want it to happen. But that would be to me, heaven, to be, te- to be teaching about Jesus and then all of a sudden be in his presence. That would be so, such a wonderful experience. You know, I was just talking about you, Lord, and here you are. And here we see, and we see it over and over even in the scriptures. You know, many people, when Jesus went to Lazarus because Mary and Martha wanted him resurrected, and it says that Jesus wept everybody looks at that and see, you know, because they said, see how much he cares about his friend. Now, I don't think he was crying about having lost Lazarus. I think he was crying because of what he was going to put Lazarus through. That's a personal opinion because he understood Lazarus is in a better place. Mary and Martha, I know you really want him and you're really sad. I'm going to go ahead and bring him back. And I think there was a double miracle there. He brought him back from heaven and had to have clear, clear, cleared out his memory about what he experienced. I do not believe that you could be called back from heaven and be happy on, in this world. Because everything would be so dark, so dreary, so miserable. Even with the blessings of God, I don't believe that you could come back from heaven and be happy on this world. Uh, so I believe there was a double miracle. He, he brought him back to life and he had to have cleared out his memory of heaven. And he did. And why did Jesus do that? He did it for Mary and Martha's sake, not for Lazarus. I'm sure if they could have talked to Lazarus, he said, no, I'll be here, I'll be here when you get here. Just leave me. I am perfectly happy. I am perfectly happy being where I'm at. Hezekiah did not have that much confidence in God. He saw God as just the God of this world and not, not eternity. And this is sad because I know so many people that are that way. You know, the, the old adage, you know, how are you doing? Well, I'm on this side of the, on this side of the earth. And they're saying, they're like, that's a good thing. Well, yeah, I'm glad if I can serve God, I'm glad to be on this side of, this side of the uh, earth, but I want to be in heaven. This should be our goal. You know, I want to go through heaven. Hezekiah faced the shadow of the valley of death and says, I'm not going, God. I don't want to go. Give me, give me more life. And the amazing thing is that God gives it to him you know I, and this is just it if you pray intensely enough and ask God hard enough, you might just get the answer to your prayer. make sure you're praying in his name and with what he wants, because Hezekiah gets an answered prayer that he' he's, he's going to later that he would regret, and that Israel will regret and it says and his prayer is remember now, O Lord, I beseech you, how I have walked before you in, in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in your sight. And Hezekiah war, wept sorely. This really tells you what Hezekiah's heart is. God, I've been a really good man. I've done lots of good things for you. I really deserve to be staying on this world. And we read in Second Chronicles that he turns his heart away from God toward the end days. You know, what a disaster for him. He turns his heart from God he gets a son who's going to be one of the worst kings of Israel. And he got it all because he was afraid to go stand before God and enter into paradise. And this is something that we need to be very careful about. And we see his attitude. His attitude was, God, I've done. Look at all the things, God, I've done. I've done a lot of good things. God, I deserve to live. I des-, you know." And he's not even talking about, God, I deserve to go to paradise. You know, he, he pretty much assumed paradise, but he's not looking at the heavenly. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians never look at God's future in heaven as being the thing. We get so wrapped up in what we see. This world, this, this life. And this life is nothing compared to heaven. <laughs> and God has given, you know, if you're a follower of him and you're, you've got peace that passes understanding, and he's blessing, this is a good, we can end up, enjoying life i've got one of the guys at work is so miserable all the time he's not a christian and he is miserable all the time he sees nothing good about life he's miserable with work his health is failing he doesn't like work he's trying to just hold on until retirement age so that he can retire and enjoy life somehow i don't know what he's going to enjoy in life because he is a miserable person and he like, make, likes to make life miserable for everybody else. And he gets irritated at me because I go, Hi, how are you doing? Isn't it a wonderful day? And he just growls. He cannot understand that I'm at peace and really happy most of the time. He just does not understand that because he's miserable. He knows that I'm a Christian, but he, could, he says he doesn't believe in God, so he doesn't believe that. He just believes I'm a bubbly, happy personality rather than somebody that God has blessed and that's how he thinks and that's how the world thinks and this is how Hezekiah is thinking you know this world is really all there is God I'm doing everything I can for you I don't I don't want to die and I know many Christians that are this way they're not looking forward to spending eternity in heaven part of it is because I don't really think they know who they are in Christ And this is the sad thing. How many Christians do not know how God sees them? God sees us as perfect. He's waiting for us to come to heaven because he says, that's my son, that's my daughter. They're perfect. They're the righteousness of Jesus Christ, my son, and they are perfect. And unfortunately, too many of us don't see that we're blessed, we're adopted, we're we're a child of God. He sees us as perfect. He sees us as righteous. And it is that sad thing that we don't see ourselves that way and again if we saw ourselves that way how would we treat others if we really started to understand how God sees us it would change the way we deal with others if I see myself in needing of his grace and and his mercy and that I'm so blessed that he's given me grace and forgiveness I would be motivated then to show grace and forgiveness to other people And I see so many Christians that don't want to show grace and forgiveness to other people. You know, they're just, no, no, you don't deserve it. I'm not giving it to you. Because somewhere in the back of their mind, they think that God has changed me. And I somehow deserve the grace and mercy that God has shown me. I am agreeing with Paul. The more I walk with God and the closer I walk with him, the more I see that I'm just a sinful, dirty, rotten scoundrel they may not be doing all the crazy stuff that a lot of the world is doing, but by no means am I pure and, and, and clean. And God shows it to me all the time. He goes, what did you just think? What did you just do? What did you just say? Uh, okay, God, I guess you're right. I'm not very good, am I? He goes, I still see you as perfect. I still see you as forgiven. But we do need to see ourselves as who we are, but we also need to understand who God says we are. Well, we will never have our first thought being a godly thought. We can be walking so close to God that that godly thought comes so close that we think it was first. But we are flesh and blood. You know, When somebody says something against me, when somebody smacks me upside the head, my first thought's going to be retaliate. Now, I can be walking so close to God that his says, no, give grace, give mercy, and it comes in so fast that I might think that it was my first thought. But my first thought is always going to be retaliate, and if I'm walking close to him, I can live godly because he's right there. But my first thought is always going to be, you dirty, you, you dirty rotten so and so. I'm going to, I'm going to take care of you for that. You de- you're going to, des- you're going to get what you deserve, and then God, the God can be right there and saying, grace, grace, and this comes down to really understanding, I don't deserve anything he's given to me. Even after 48 years of walking with him and cleaning out a lot of garbage out of my life, there are still a lot of sinful thoughts and, act, and activities in my life. And I get, okay, God, yes, I need, I need grace and mercy. I guess I really need to show grace and mercy to others. And that is what our movie about is about tomorrow, learning to give grace from a man who thought he knew how to give grace, and then he's challenged on, do you really know how to give grace? And believe me, I get those challenges all the time. And because, I, because of how far along I am, my challenges are pretty tough sometimes, all right? I get people who are a lot like this movie is, where you think you know how to give grace, and all of a sudden, in your life comes somebody who really challenges, can I give grace and forgiveness to this person? And Hezekiah is not living in that world. He's thinking, God, I, I deserve this prayer. I really need this prayer answered, God, because I'm a good person. And we're going to find out that he really wasn't that good a person. God was using him. God was giving him mercy. God was giving him grace. And he was a pretty good follower of God. He's the one when the king's surrounding the, the city that he's praying for God and he immediately bows his face down on the ground and says, God, deliver us from these, from these people. After he had done a couple other things wrong... <laughs> like trying to go buy Egypt's help and all this other stuff, but he finally bows his heart to God and says, God, you're my only hope. Now he's forgetting that God is his only hope. Well, God is his only hope to live, but he's forgetting that God has a full life after this. And this is something that we need to keep in mind. What keeps us moving and motivating to do things in this world is our focus on heaven. And it's it's an accusation a lot of times. This person is so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly good. There is no such thing as being too heavenly-minded. Because the more we see God's greatness and blessing, the more we are going to do on this world. This world has changed drastically because of Christians and our heavenly-minded attitude where we say we're all children of God. We're all created in his image. We have built hospitals. We have built orphanages. We care for the... The needy, we care for the, the ones that need help. Before Christianity, and what we're returning to today is if you're sick, tough. You can't get healthy, it's your problem. You can't afford the doctor, it's your problem. It's not my problem. You got injured in battle, you've been a good soldier, see you later. We're going to leave you here on the side of the road. If you can get healthy, come and join us. If not, it's fun having you. You're getting old. You're, all you're going to do is drain the drain the finances from your inheritance. You deserve to die. Your kids should be able to kill you. Uh, kids are going to be a trouble and bothersome to my lifestyle. Just kill them. Get rid of them. No big no big deal. And this is what happens. This is what was it like before Christianity? All through the history before Christianity, and we and I and I hate it when they say we're being post-Christian. We're actually going to pre-Christian. What was what was is becoming. And that tells us back to our Ecclesiastes studies. There's nothing new under the sun. The real new part was when God moved and brought people that cared for other people. And that's not even new because there was pockets of it all through history with the Jewish people. And the new thing was the 2,000 years where we had Christian morals and ethics reigning over the world. Not all Christians, but just their the rules and ethics of good behavior and caring for people and building hospitals, building orphanages, caring for the, caring for the, the ones who don't deserve to be cared for. Hezekiah is forgetting all about this kind of a God. He's saying, God, I did, look what I did. I turned this country around. We see that in there. You know, look at all that I did. And we are in trouble when we, we try to put it, I in the middle of everything that was Satan's big sin. I will exalt myself. I will ascend to the mountain. I will sit next to the most high. And he was cast out of heaven. And when we get in there thinking that I have done anything, God will say, Okay, let me show you what your pride's going to accomplish. And pride is something we all have to deal with. It is so easy to get prideful. It is so funny, every time I start to get a little proud, I see the numbers on our webpage climb up in the sermons, and God will say, okay, let me bring you back down. So I try very hard now not to even hardly look at those numbers to try to figure out how we're doing. You know, if God's using it, great. And I don't know how he's using it, and he might not be telling me just because of my problem with pride, that he doesn't want me to know (laughs) how it's being used and what's going on. And... We want to be very careful of him. Here we see Hezekiah praying. And he prays and he wept sorely. And then in verse 4, And then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord God God of David your, your father, I have heard your prayers, I have seen your tears, and behold, I will add 15 years. Hezekiah gets his prayer answered. And again, we go back to Second Chronicles that we read, and says that he became proud and arrogant. And we know from other places that Manasseh is going to start reigning when he is 13 years old, which means add 15 years to Manasseh, uh, to Hezekiah's life, and you have the 13-year-old taking taking the reign. He was born two years after the promise that Hezekiah would have 15 more years. How sad. How sad for Israel that that happened. Now, I don't know if any of Hezekiah's other kids would have been better or not, but but Manasseh gets to reign. And and I kind of wonder what happened to Hezekiah's other kids uh, throughout this process. But he says, you're gonna have 15 years. Now, I'm not sure that I would like to know exactly how many years I have in in my life. I don't know that I would like to know, okay, you have five more years. It might be nice for the first four, Okay, okay, I can I've got a goal, I've got a goal. I'm in that last year? How tough would that be? All right. Okay, God, did you mean exactly three hundred and sixty-five days in this year or fifteen days in this year? You know, not knowing the exact day, but also knowing this is this is the last year I'm gonna live. Even if it is three hundred and sixty five days. This is the last year I'm gonna live, especially when you've already begged to have your life extended. Okay, it would be one thing to die not knowing. But he's begged. It would be I think it would be an awful place to be. And God says, You've got fifteen years. And then God says, I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. Hezekiah, you've been you've had this all this trouble with Shnechareb. I'm gonna I'm gonna defend you. I'm gonna protect you. I'm going to help you help you out of this trouble. And deliver you from these people. So in many ways, it sounds like a great deal for Hezekiah. Hezekiah, your enemy's going to be destroyed. I've given you health. Your city's city's delivered. Matter of fact, you don't have to worry about Assyria coming in during your lifetime. And it's an amazing thing to me that when God makes this promise to some of these kings, you know, they go, okay, I'm fine. David, when he was told, your judgment won't fall on you or Solomon, he's like, okay, good. (laughs) I can't remember which other king, but one king was told that your, your judgment, your penalty is not going to fall on you, but it will fall on your, fall on your son. And you, oh, great, thank you. Yeah. It's like, okay, your son is going to suffer because of something you did, and you're happy? How selfish do you have to be for that to happen? You know, to be happy that your son and your, peop- and your nation is going to suffer, but you don't. That, to me, is hard for the fathom. Just because I want to walk with God, I want to, I, I agree with, with uh, J- Moses, God punish me. You know, you said you want to make me the new, new Abraham and start a new kingdom. No, God, that'll, that'll ruin your testimony. We can't do that. But if it will help, if, if you will keep these people, take me and put me in hell, but save the people. Paul says the same thing. He goes, if I could go to hell in your place for all of you to go, I would gladly do it. I don't have that kind of love for people yet. Okay. I have a great love. I want to see them get saved and all that, but I haven't ever had the, the audacity to even think that prayer. Now, I know God wouldn't make it happen, but I still never, never thought that prayer. God, if you would just save all these people, whatever, my family, the church, whatever, then just send me to hell, I have, don't have that much love yet. Uh, I can't imagine having that much love. It's taken God to give me any love for people. And I am not there yet to be able to make that kind of a prayer. Not that it would ever be answered, God wouldn't, and I think both Moses and Paul knew, but there was the heart that they had. God, I would give anything to save these people. I know they don't deserve it, I know that they're awful and miserable people, but if it but if could be, just send me to hell and, and take them to heaven. And I don't have that kind of love. Hezekiah's not gonna have that kind of love. And we go forward you know, in there. And it says, "This shall be the sign from you of the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that He has spoken. Behold, I will bring again the shadow of the degrees that have gone down in the sun by sundial of Ahaz ten degrees backwards, so the sun returned ten degrees by which degrees it had gone down. In other words, the shadow on the sundial moved backwards. He turned time back, turned time back or at least turned." Now there's all kinds of different ways that this could have been done. Now, when Joshua was fighting in a battle and he needed an extra day, God stopped the sun from moving for a 24 hour period. Did he stop the earth? Did he, you know, How did he do it? I don't know, don't care. All it says is that he did it. And if the sun stopped on that side of the world for a day, that meant it was dark on the other side of the world for the day. And I'd love to find some history that talks about a 48 hour night. You know, somewhere here in American Indian legends or the Polynesian islands, wherever, wherever it would be dark for 48 hours. I would love to find that because that would, you know, that would be all, oh, look at that. Look how crazy they were. They thought they had a long night. If God stopped the sun somewhere over there, then there would have to be a long night. However, just saying that, God is light. The world could have rotated just like normal and God could have been the light for, for them just as if the sun had been shining. How God did it, don't know, don't care, all right? Because he's the creator, he can do what he wants. How did he make the sundial go back 10 degrees? Which would be somewhere between 20 and 40 minutes, depending on how you measure the degrees. And We don't know. On a a uh, 360 sundial, it would be 20 minutes. But we only have sun 12 hour days, so 10 degrees back could be uh, 40 minutes because of the measuring the amount of sunlight, and we don't know exactly what it is, but God somehow gave him 20 to 40 minutes. Did He do it by stopping the world from rotating and running it backwards, or stopping it just like He did with the, with Joshua and the long day? Did He move the sun itself to to change it? And there's a I read a long article where guy tries to prove that God actually literally moved the sun so that the degrees would would be there because He said that. We had a 360-day year, and now we have a 365-day year, which would, and he gives a lot of math of how 40 minutes would be just perfect for, you know, for the sun to move this much and cause a longer, longer day you know, for, the, for, the, for the earth. How God did it, again, I don't care how he did it. All I know is he said he did it. Did he move the sun? Did he move the earth? Did he stop the earth? Did he totally reverse the earth? Even if he stopped the earth, what a miracle that would be. Did he just move the sundial back? I don't know how he did it. It doesn't matter. God did it. And this is one of these places where people go, well, that can't be true. The The sun couldn't have gone back 10 degrees. It can't go back 20 minutes or 40 minutes. Just no possible way. I serve a God who created the whole heavens and earth and created everything in the earth and created the sun and moon and the earth. And it is obeys his commands and if God wants to have moved it he'll have moved it it could be as simple as all of a sudden there was a shift in the axis of the earth by about 10 degrees that is possible because the earth even today shifts a little bit and every time it does they have to change our clocks very microscopically you know by a couple of seconds so it would be a pretty major shift if you have a 20 minute shift but you know God could have done any number of, of ways to do this And I'm not worried about how he did it. All I know is it says he did it, he did it. And it says it in three different places that he did it. I think he wanted it to be very clear. Right here I did it, right here I did it, right here I did it, guess what? I did it, all right? Joshua's battle is only given to us in once, but it is referenced a couple of times that it it was considered to be a true event because other people reference back to the the long day of the battle. Uh, Here, God says, Fine, you don't want to believe one? I'll write it three different places with three different writers and so that you will hopefully now remember <laughs> and trust it. And you know this is the great thing when we talk about this. If you read something one time in the Bible, you can believe it, but don't be trying to teach a doctrine on it. This one is written in three different places. When God repeats something three times, he's he's trying to make a point. And I was really trying to figure out, God, what point are you trying to make here? And I think it literally is just, I am powerful enough to move the, move the sundial back 10 degrees. And if you, in case you don't want to believe it, I'm going to keep repeating it to let you know it happened. And again, this, this comes down to faith. How can I prove that God did this? I can't. He said he did. And Kings that said it did. And Chronicles that said, said he did. And he's very clearly saying, I did it. And my God is powerful enough to do it. The how is irrelevant. And, I, and I've said this so many times. If people can point out a natural phenomenon that can answer a supernatural event, I really don't care. Because it happened just when God said that it would. And so if there was some mighty earthquake or the axis of the earth t- tilted or somehow we proved that the sun was moved, you know what? I don't care. It still happened at just the time God said it was going to happen For Hezekiah's sign to be proven. Doesn't matter to me the house. God is smarter than we are. He knows just a little bit more about science than we do. So if he could say, okay, all I had to do was tweak this over here and the rain was stopped for, for, for five years in the land. I don't care if you can point out to me where it happened. It still happened at the right time. And when the prophet prayed for rain, the rain came. So again, God tweaked the, rain, the, the weather to stop it. And then he tweaked it to, to start again. And somebody could prove this is how he did it. I don't care. Because God knows just a little bit more about weather than we do. He would know exactly, well, if I make this happen over here in this part of the, part of the world, this is what's going to happen over there. I don't care if you can give me a, a rational exp- reason for it. It still stopped when the prophet said, no more rain, and it didn't start again until he said, let there be rain. So if we have these natural explanations, I don't, I don't mind. They all fall flat anyway. Well, God created begin so even if it's a natural explanation, God created a natural. Right. He created all of nature. He created everything. So it's not a problem to me if we can come up with, well, you do this and this and this, and <clears throat> all these things happen. They try to explain away the ten plagues of Egypt. And it's like, okay, I might might buy that algae flooded the, the Nile and made it red and killed everything. I might buy that. But there is nothing out there that will make darkness so thick that you can't see your hand in front and that you would have no light in your dwellings for three days. That if you light a candle, it did not penetrate the darkness. There's nothing in nature that will cause that. And even worse, Goshen did not experience darkness. All right? So right there, at this, you've got dark, dark, dark light. <laughs> nothing, nothing in nature would, would let that happen. So you might be able to explain some of the stuff, but you're not going to explain every bit of it. God supernaturally makes things happen. Balaam talking to a donkey. I don't know of any animal that talks like that, that you can understand, you know, and and I can like I say the greatest thing I see about that story is that Balaam actually talked to the donkey. If, if I had one of my animals talking to me, I would be freaked out. Uh, okay, my wife thinks you can talk, but I have never heard you talk, And you know, um, that would be my first conversation. How did you learn to talk? What's going on here? I would be freaked out. I wouldn't be talking to the donkey and saying you deserve this beating. I would be like, what? <laughs> uh, and we look at these. We look at each one of these little pieces. Jesus multiplying the, the loaves and the fishes to feed 5,000 people. You know, and, you know, the natural one, yeah, there was a lot of people that added food to that. They just secretly added food to it. 5,000 people yeah. got a loaf of bread in their pocket. Yeah. <laughs> well, it doesn't make sense anyway because they'd already looked to feed people and there wasn't any. But the world, when it tries to discount God's supernatural abilities comes up with the dumbest ideas now when we look at the resurrection of Jesus what are some of the things well he wasn't dead in the first place all right well sorry the this this, the spear up into the cavities producing blood and water shows us that he was dead his water his plasma was separating already Uh, these guys were professional killers they they knew you know he didn't just slip into a coma uh, you know, we we know different things, and even if he was into a coma, somehow magically, he in the cold tomb, he woke up in the middle, before the three days, moved a big, big, big uh, two, uh, one-ton rock, fought off the Roman guard, and, and looked so good after three days that everybody said, "Oh, you've resurrected." Yeah, it doesn't. None of that makes sense. Uh, you know, here we see this great deliverance, and the sign is that the sun dial was going to move back 10 degrees. Now, that would be a pretty impressive sign. And it tells us in Kings that he was asked, do you want it to go forward 10 degrees or backwards? And I kind of like his answer in one sense, even though, well, it's it's no big deal for it to go forward, even if it moved forward, you know, because if, if I say forward, all you got to do is wait for it to move 10 degrees, and it's done that. If I say backwards, that's a big deal. That is a big deal. And how God moved it backwards, I don't care. Did he move the sundial? Did he move that part of the land with an earthquake? You know, it doesn't really tell us how he did it. I don't care. I think he literally moved the sun back. You know, and whether that was turning the earth or turning the sun, I don't care. (laughs) Both of them are a pretty big deal. And only God could do either one of them at the right time. Verse 9, in the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and was recovered from his sickness... I said in my cutting off of my days that I shall go to the gates of the grave. I am deprived of the residue of my years. In other words, he says, I I am deserved more years. I deserve more years. God, I have been good. This should sound very similar to what is, why do bad things happen to good people? And this this is what Hezekiah is saying. God, I've done all these good things. I deserve a long life. I deserve to live longer you know, and we need to be very careful we don't deserve anything from God except death because that's what we deserve we sin all the time and the rages of sin is death even though God gives us eternal life and he gives us forgiveness we earn death period and we are going to cash in at some point we're going to get the payment we're going to die the good news for us that as followers of Christ, that we die, we go to the bema seat of Christ. And he says, let's, let's look at your works. Let's throw all your works in the fire and see what survives. Your wood, hay, and stubble, everything that we do burns up. Everything that he does through us is rewarded. And he comes out with, his, with a pile of whatever and says, here's your rewards. And hopefully we hear the most gracious words, well done, good and faithful servant. If you die not in Christ, You will go into hell, a temporary staging place until God gets to the end, and then you will stand at the white throne judgment. Everybody standing at the white throne judgment is guilty, and they will be condemned to the lake of fire for eternity. eternity. We think about hell as being the eternal place. Hell is only the holding cell. And how the lake of fire could be worse, I don't know, because the description of hell is bad fire that burns and you do not, you do not uh, can be consumed, a worm that turns, you know, which is your conscience, you know, reminding you you're there because you made bad decisions. You know, can you imagine if you, your, your conscience bothering you for eternity and never being able to get forgiveness? That's what I'm meaning. You know, we as Christians, we get bothered for a short period of time. Even the lost world get bothered by their conscience it irritates us and but we can get asked for forgiveness we can ask even people for forgiveness if we're not a Christian and we can be told I forgive you but for eternity having your conscience telling you you're here because you rejected Jesus Christ and I truly believe that part of on the white throne judgment God is going to show every single person every time they rejected the offer of forgiveness and, and grace and they're going to remember it for all of eternity. I'm in this awful, miserable, terrible place because I rejected however many offers I rejected. And we know it's bad enough because when Jesus told the parable of, of Lazarus and the rich man, he goes, the rich man looked up in agony into the bosom of Abraham, which is paradise, and said, Father Abraham, you know, I want just a drop of water. He says, you had yours. You had your rewards in life. Now you get to suffer. You know, and that is, and here's the arrogance to ask for Lazarus to come and give it to him. He still, even though he was in hell, suffering in hell, waiting for the ultimate judgment, he still thought he was better than Lazarus who went to heaven. You know, Send Lazarus down here. I still have a lot of pride. I'm, I'm still better than him, even though he's in a better place now and I'm not in a good place. You know. And I really do believe that when one of the problems in hell is that you're going to look up at what, you're, what you've missed. You'll be able to look into heaven. It'll be a one-way mirror type deal. You know, he looked up. He saw what was going on. And I believe that's part of the punishment of hell. Now, I can't make a doctrine out of it because that's the only verse that talks about seeing into paradise. But I truly believe that that is telling us they're going to see what they're missing. They're going to see their loved ones who are saved enjoying Eternity. What a you know, we're talking about some serious punishment. You know, you're going to watch those you loved who went to heaven saying, Wow, oh, I'm probably being angry about it," you know, especially if they didn't tell you. <laughs> but here we see this whole thing that he says, you know, I was cut off from the days of the residual of my years. Basically, he's saying you know, he literally is believing, God, I told you I, I deserve better. And he's feeling happy. God gave him more years, which are going to be miserable years for him. And I've heard this story a lot of times where people begged God for a healing, that they were on the, on the death, and then they were sorry that they got that healing a lot of times. Things happened to them that were miserable. They watched their family fall apart. They've watched businesses fall apart. They thought this was going to be a great experience, and they, and they would have been better off, especially if they're a Christian, dead. And they regret God answering that prayer. And this is something we need to be very careful. When we pray and we beg God for something, we better be sure that it's his word and it's his, his desire, because he might just answer it. Uh, it was an old country song, but I re- still remember it. Thank God for unanswered prayers. And it was a little, it was a little bit, you know, far-fetched but it was you know saw the girl that he begged God to let Mary you know and and it didn't happen and she fa- found out that she turned out to be ugly and a shrew and all this other stuff and said thank you God you know thank you for the unanswered prayers and I think we need to be more along that line God there are some prayers that you're just not going to answer and it's for our good that you don't answer them because if we beg God long enough he might just answer a prayer that is not for our good Hezekiah got a prayer answered that he didn't want answered. Let's see. Verse eleven, I, I said, "I shall not see the Lord, even the Lord, in the land of the living. I shall behold man no more with the inhabitants of the world. My age is departed, and is removed from me as a shepherd's tent. I have cut I have cut off like the weaver of my life. He will cut me off with pining sickness from day even to night. Will you make an end to me? I reckon till morning that as a lion, so, will, so he will break all my bones from day even to night. Will you make an end of me? Like a crane or a swallow, so did I chatter. I did mourn and as a dove. My eyes failed to look with looking upward, O Lord. I am oppressed. Undertake for me. For what shall I say? He has both spoken unto me and himself has done it. I shall go softly all my years into the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and all these things is is the life of my spirit. So will you recover me and make, make me live. Behold, for peace I have great bitterness. But you have in love for my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For the grave cannot praise you, the dead cannot celebrate you. They cannot go down into the pit, cannot hope for your truth. The living, the living, he shall praise you as I do this day. The father of the children shall make known your truth. The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, I will sing my song to the stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. For Isaiah has said, said, let them take a lump of fig and lay it in a pollster upon my boil and he shall recover. Hezekiah said, also, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? It starts out with him being miserable. Ends a, little, ends a little bit on the high side. But he starts out with this whole idea. You have cut off my days. I shall go to the gates of the, the grave. I am deprived of the residue of my years. I shall not see the Lord, even the Lord, in the land of the living. I shall behold a man no more in the inhabitants of the world. He does not have a hope in heaven. He believes that when he dies, he's not going to see God. What a miserable way to live. Because this is what he's saying. I shall not see the Lord. Even the Lord in the land of the living. He doesn't really believe that there's life after death. death that, that he's going to live. Yeah. And he's still griping, he's still griping because he was, came that close to dying. All right. And he's still not healthy. When he's starting this prayer, he's not healthy yet. Because he's going to be healed in three days. So he's still kind of wallowing in this and probably wondering is it really going to happen? He, at, the point, at this point, he may not have even seen the shadow turn back yet because at the very end, he goes, what, what shall this sign be? He knows that there's going to be a sign, but I don't believe it happened instantly right that moment. And he's here griping God, I'm not going to see you. You're taking me out of the land of the living. And I'm not going to see you anymore. And I really do believe there's Christians that don't believe that there's a life after death. They're just happy with the life that God's given them now, maybe. <laughs> but they're not looking forward to the life that God has in store for them. My age is departed and is removed from me as a shepherd's tent. I have, I have cut off the weaver beam of my life. He will cut me off in the, with a pining sickness. And from day even to night, you will make an end of me. So at this point, he's still griping. God, you're, you're cutting off my days. I'm not, I'm not old enough to die yet, is what he's saying. I'm still young. However, whatever age he was, I had to go, go back and figure out when he died. I don't remember how old he was. But he's going, I'm too young to die. And God has taken me home. I reckon till morning that, that as a lion, so he will break all my bones from day even to night, you will make an end of me. And he's looking... God, obviously he was in a painful sickness. He's feeling like God is crunching his bones and breaking his bones. And some of us have been sick enough every once in a while to to know what this feels like. God just, you know, usually we will say, just get it over with, God. I want to come home. That wasn't Hezekiah's answer. God, I want to live longer. I'm too young to die. Like a crane or a swallow, so did I chatter. I did mourn like a dove. My eyes fell filled. With looking upward, O Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. And that's not undertake me by going home. This is go forward. <laughs> go forward and, and deliver me. But he's, he's like a crane or a swallow, whistling and chattering. Uh, he says, I'm, I'm not giving up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep, keep talking to you. And verse 15, what shall I say? He hath both spoken unto me. And he himself have done it. I shall go softly all the years in the bitterness of my soul. Now here I don't know if he's complaining that God's going to heal me and I'm going to be bitter. Or if he's just saying I'm coming to the end and it's bitterness. He's been promised that God's going to give him 15 years. <laughs> you know, but again, it's not going to happen for three days. Now, and this is part of our problem as human beings. God, I want this to happen, and I want it now. You know, when Mary and Martha called for Jesus to heal Lazarus, Jesus came three days late as far as they were concerned. And they were going, Lord, what took you so long? If you had been here three days ago when we asked you to be here, he wouldn't be dead. How often do we think that God has arrived late? God always arrives on time even if it's three days late <laughs> by our, by our es- estimation. Hezekiah is saying, God, you're, you, you want me to suffer for three days. That's three days longer than I want to suffer. You know, you, you, you're, I wanted my healing now. I wanted to be, be with you now. I wanted to be living now, not three days from now. And he's showing a lack of faith. And this is something that is very important for us to understand. God is always, always on time. Joseph, sold into slavery. You know, he had a vision from, his, from God saying, your brothers are going to bow down to him. Matter of fact, your mother and father are going to bow down to you. None of them believed it. 17-year-old, get this vision, he's not bowed down to until he's 37. 30, uh, 20 years later his brothers bow down to him. You know, David uh, J- David, Joseph could have been complaining all that time. God, what happened to this? What happened to my dream? I don't understand this. You said my brothers are going to bow down before me. God, you're 20 years too late. <laughs> but it doesn't indicate that he ever ever did that. I'm sure he did. He was human. There had to be times when he was just like, God, I know you gave me this vision. I know you said this was going to happen, but how is it ever going to happen? I'm a slave in Egypt. How is it that my brother is going to come and bow before me? I, God, you must have lied to me. There had to be times when he went through that, especially when he was in the middle of slavery. And then, when just when everything was looking like it was picking up in the slave house, he gets falsely accused of rape and ends up in prison. Because he might have been going, "Okay, God, I don't, you know, I don't see how my brother is going to bow down, but at least I get to run a house. It's not too bad. I'm a good. I'm a high placed." high place, slave, it's, it's, this is an okay life. The guy says, nope, that's not the life I wanted to, and drops him all the way back to, to worse than slave, prisoner. And then finally promotes him. And at that point, he probably could begin to see, hey, my brother's ever come down here, they're going to bow down to me, because I am second in charge of Egypt. They're going to bow down. At that point, I think he was beginning to have some hope again, that brother you know brothers are going to bow down and then when he sees his brothers you know he puts them through all these tests but you know we look at that how many of us would have been stayed faithful for 20 years for something to happen not many of us abraham you're going to have a child abraham you're 50 years old you're going to have a child 50 years later <laughs> when he's too old to have kids Sarah's too old; she's not even having periods anymore. And he says, "Okay, now you get to have your baby." Yeah, uh, yeah, right, God. Uh, you waited long enough, and yet He did it. We end up with Noah. Noah, I'm going to build this. You're going to build this boat, boat and I'm going to destroy the people with rain. God, what's rain? Rain's water falling down from. Okay, God, if you say so. Starts building a boat one hundred and twenty years later (laughs) rain comes can you imagine having to stay faithful for hundred and twenty years it said that god was the days of man are 120 years and he gave him the boat the directions for building the boat did it take him the whole 120 years i don't know did he start right away i don't know but he was told, 120 years of the days of man, and, I, and I'm going to judge them. I believe that he probably did, especially if it was just him and his sons. Now, if he hired other people to help, it might have been quicker, but uh, four men and, and four women building an ark probably would take close to 120 years. Uh, it would definitely take a while. Uh, and so we see this. He's saying, he's complaining And he's busy complaining, he says, I'm like the I'm like the the swallows and the cranes, just whistling and and chattering. God, I want you to hear me. I'm just gonna I'm gonna keep complaining, I'm gonna keep complaining, I'm gonna keep complaining, I'm not happy. We've all know what it's like to be around people that aren't happy. And he's basically telling God, I'm gonna be that way. Oh Lord, in verse 16, by these things men live, and in all these things is life of my spirit so will you recover me and make me to live. Behold, for peace I have kept bitterness, but you have in your love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, then you have cast all my sins behind you. At this point, he starts to get a little happy, even though he's going to suffer for three days. He goes, you have delivered me from the pit of corruption, death. That's fancy way, poetic way to say death. And I love this because he finally starts understanding something. You have cast all my sins behind you. He's starting to begin to see God's grace and his mercy and you know this is important for us if we're really going to understand God we have to understand he has taken our sins as the psalm says he has separated us from our sins as far as the east is from the west which is an infinite amount of distance he has cast them into the deepest sea he has forgotten them why because he has a divine fiat that it's under the blood of Jesus Christ and he's by by divine command says, I'm not going to remember sin no more. Only God can do that. And because he made that command, he is not going to go find them. They're forgiven. The only sin that's not forgivable by God is the rejection of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. That will send us to hell. And that's enough to send us to hell. Because if you reject that, then you're standing in God in your righteousness and you're going to be judged for your righteousness. Not being good enough and this is something that is very not understood by the world not even understood by most christians that your goodness doesn't impress, doesn't impress god everything that you can do good god says not not good enough not good enough your good works don't get you across the pit to to heaven and god says eh, they're filthy rags anyway not going to be acceptable We need to really understand that. Does that mean we don't do good works? No. We do good works because God has allowed us to do good works. And they have good consequences. But they're not going to get us into heaven. And they're not going to keep us out of hell. And we see here that he doesn't fully understand that yet. Behold, for peace I have great bitterness, that you, in your love for my soul, deliver me from the pit of corruption. I'm sorry, I read that. Uh, Verse 18. For the grave cannot praise you, death cannot celebrate you, They that go down into the pit cannot hope for your truth. And that is a true statement. If you go into the pit, you're not going to praise God. But when the righteous die, we go to heaven and we will praise him for all of eternity. So he's half right in his statement, but not completely right. Those who are rejected by him cannot praise him. But those who die in their righteousness and if God is blessed get to praise God for eternity. Verse 19, the living, the living, he shall praise you as I do this day, the father to the children, which shall make known your truth. The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing the songs uh, to the stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. So he's basically saying only the living can praise God. That's not the picture we get in the scriptures, even in the Old Testament, in heaven, The worship of God is going to be a big part of heaven. And I really am looking forward to that day. There have been times when I worship where I just for a moment just feel like I've entered into heaven. Just utter peace and love, just worshiping God. And it doesn't last long. It's never lasted long. But just that little taste says, God, I want to get to heaven. This will be so wonderful i am not one of those people that think it will be boring spending 20 or 30 trillion years just worshiping god because it won't seem like that long because there's no time as we know it in heaven and just to be able to see him and fall at his feet worshiping him we'll spend the first part of our time in heaven we're not going to be thinking, you know, and I, and I hear it all the time, and it actually scares me when people go, well, I know my grandma's up in heaven watching me, watching over me. I don't think so. I think mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, great-grandpa, great-great-grandpa, whoever's in heaven in your family, if they actually have family meet you in heaven, and it's possible, but it'll be Jesus saying, oh, by the way, your, your great-grandson's coming up today, go, go greet them. For Isaiah has said, let them take a lump of figs and for a pollster upon his boil and he shall recover. Hezekiah also said, what is the sign that I shall go to the house of the Lord? And he already knew the sign before he started this. And he's just repeating, I said this. And he's still, I think, waiting for that sign. I don't believe the sign happened immediately when Isaiah said, the sun's going to move backwards. He had to wait for it, had to have a little bit of faith. How many times do we not have a little bit of faith? Well, I thought was going to die next time. Well, no, because what he, what he was told was, once you're healed in three days, when you're healed, you will go into the house of the Lord and, and worship. We go all the way back to the beginning of this, this sentence. No, he's not talking about the, the house of your fathers. If, it was, if he was looking for the time he was dying, it would be the the house of your fathers, the tomb, the, the tomb that he was told you were going to go worship in the house of the Lord in three days. So that's what he's saying. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your love, your kindness. We ask you to be with us and guide us. Show us how much you want to love us and care for us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name, amen.